Good morning. It's good to be with you all. My name is Dave Adair. I'm one of uh, two leaders here in the church whose midlife crisis is manifesting itself through growing out our hair. So, the, uh, there are less healthy ways to deal with your 40s, and I feel like Ryan and I are expressing that in a healthy way. So, I'm a little jealous of his ponytail, but I'll get there. We have some, uh, we have some heavy lifting to do today. Um, when your kids in your car ask you, what did you learn at church today? You can say, we learned about delivering someone over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, for the salvation of his soul. It's good news. It sounds hard. It is hard, but it's ultimately really, 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 really good. Um, it's been good for me. I pray that it's going to be good for each of us. So we need to do what we always do, which is uh, pray for one another, with one another, and uh, pray the Holy Spirit's help as we, we dig into this. So you for me, me for you, us together, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you for the good news of your presence, that you are God with us. You pursue us. You discipline us. You love us. Who you are and what you've done changes everything for each and every one of us. And Spirit of God, we come as we always do, and, and we say, we know you're here. You know you in, we know you indwell in my brothers and sisters, everyone who is in Christ, and we pray for soft hearts, open ears, that we would hear and be shaped and formed by all you have to say for us and to us today. We pray this in your name, Jesus, God's people said. Amen. 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 I don't know if, uh, like, today's your first day at Frontline or if you, you know, um, like some of you in this room uh, were there 17 years ago. But I want you to, to imagine you're visiting Frontline for the very first time. You walk in, and you can just imagine it's this building, and you uh, perhaps have children, and you, you drop them off, and you go get a cup of coffee, and you're greeted by some friends, and then you walk into this sanctuary, this main room, and as you work your way from the back of the room to the front of the room, you see a man sitting at the end of a row, and on a little leash, he has a 10-foot, 700-pound tiger. What do you think about the situation? And maybe you have like a reasonable question. You flag down a leader and you, you say something like, what the heck? Like, what is this tiger doing here? Are you going to do something about that? And since I've already picked on Ryan, Ryan is this leader, let's say, and Ryan, Ryan just says, oh, I know how that might make you uncomfortable. But that's just Doug and, and his service tiger, Tony. And you know... He hasn't really hurt anybody, and I know that, you know, we just pride ourselves in being a hospitable church, and, and the bottom line is just like, Tony the Tiger makes Doug happy, and it makes him feel comfortable, and, you know, we're, we're all just kind of okay with it, and, and it's really no harm, no foul up to this point, right? No one's really been hurt. Sin, which is a word that just encapsulates a, a profound and dangerous thing, a fundamental thing to understanding actually what's wrong with the world. First occurs in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. 
with Adam and Eve, and, and sin is a rejection of God's loving reign, his ways. Sin is crimes against God, rebelling against the rule of a good and perfect king who we were made to live in communion with very source of life. Sin is running from that source of life, and the wages of sin is death, Scripture tells us. And sin appears for the first time in Genesis 3, but, but sin is mentioned for the first time in an interesting way in Genesis 4. And the situation is this. God comes in love and concern and compassion to a man named Cain who's on a path towards sin, a path towards death, and knowing the path and seeing the path that Cain is on, God asks Cain, hey, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And theologians and Bible scholars, they, they explain when God says this to Cain that sin is crouching at the door, that original Hebrew language God is using an illustration. He's painting a picture of sin being like a beast, a devourer, a, a killer, a hunter, like a big cat predator, like a tiger waiting to pounce. And it's not to be invited inside. It's not to be domesticated. It's to be warred against, overcome, defeated, driven away. All that to say, this entire chapter that we're going to go through, in a real way, the circumstances are as if the church in Corinth has invited the beast, the predator, the tiger, right into the very center of their midst. And Paul, in love and, and passion, is plainly and powerfully calling them to drive it out. This passage today is really helpful as we ask important questions. What does it mean to be a church that takes sin seriously? What does it mean to be a church that lives out real repentance, a word that, that encapsulates something beautiful and powerful about a call to turn away from our crimes and rebellion against God and turn back to God and receive his compassion, his grace, his mercies, which are new for us every day? How do we avoid the ditches of being kind of like this, this church that's obsessed with hunting sin and always harshly evaluating and scrutinizing one another's righteousness in a way that we begin to live like modern-day Pharisees, people that are really concerned with how other people are falling short but really downplaying ways in which we're falling short? Or what's probably a greater danger for us in this, this moment in history living like God's grace is a past to sin and live like our love for God has no bearings on whether we live for God and obey him. Everything Paul says in this passage is really helpful to answer these important questions for us. And so four points as we just work our way line by line. The first thing Paul's going to really warn this church in Corinth about and that we can learn from is a warning first about the arrogance of embracing sin. The arrogance of embracing sin. Paul, as Molly read so well, begins and he says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, 
And you are arrogant. Are you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So Paul begins this section by shedding light on really two dangerous and two disastrous situations that are happening in the church in Corinth. And the first is specific to one individual. There is a man who claims to be a follower of Jesus, claims to have Jesus as his Savior and his King, who is a part of the membership of this church in Corinth, and he has an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmother. So the scenario is likely that his, maybe his mom passed away, which happened a lot in the ancient world. People died all the time for, for things that simply we have basic over-the-counter medicine to prevent. And so his, his mother most likely passes away. His dad remarries someone who's likely in his age range. And then he begins to have an ongoing affair with his father's wife. And Paul points out the dark and tragic irony of this situation. See, according to Jesus, the church was was called and meant to be a city on a hill, a light in the darkness or the salt of the earth, a people that preserve the goodness of God's creation, a people that shine a light of truth and love into the darkness of a culture and a city, a people who are holy, set apart. And yet Paul writes here, when he writes here, that there is sexual immorality among you that is a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. He's saying, look, there's something tragically ironic where the, the city of Corinth, which if you remember from the beginning when we started this series, was a city that was marked and known for its sexual deviance. It was the Amsterdam or the, the Vegas of the ancient world. That, that city is looking at what's happening within the church in Corinth and going, man, that's messed up. Like, it was an honor and shame culture in Corinth. So even though that they had no limits largely to what was sexually appropriate and, and, and what was out of bounds, they would even say, hey, to dishonor your dad like that, that's wrong. Paul is saying this relationship, even to the city in Corinth, is not tolerable. But how does the church in Corinth feel about What's going on? See, Paul's addressing two disastrous and dangerous things. The first is this individual man's sin, but Paul's even more bothered by the second situation, which is the corporate response to this individual man's sin, which is really the thrust and the focus of this entire sex. Or this text. Sex is on the mind in this text. I'll probably do that more than once. Both are true. This sexual situation in this text. I am tired, y'all. <laughs> Verse 2, Paul says, and you are arrogant. If this was an email, I think this would be like in all caps and bold, right? Paul is yelling through the parchment paper at this church in love. And you're arrogant. Why is the church arrogant? Because they presume upon the grace of God. They look at the situation that this man is in with his stepmother and and this sinful relationship. They're saying, oh, that's just freedom in Christ. And their embrace of this sinful relationship, they're just saying, hey, that's just maturity in Christ. Paul is upset because the heart in this church in Corinth towards the situation is actually beating in opposition to genuine love for God. 
Paul addresses this kind of arrogance in in Romans chapter 6 when he writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? It's a rhetorical question. Paul answers, by no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? He goes on to say, look, you've been baptized into the death of Christ and raised up to be a new creation. But ask that rhetorical question, hey, are we to continue to sin that may grace abound? The church in Corinth would be like, yeah, sure. That is why Paul is calling them out as arrogant and and actually saying that they're responding to this situation as a church in the exact opposite way that they should. And Paul says that they ought to rather mourn. What's this mean for us? The question I was asking myself and that I would propose us to ask ourselves as a congregation is, where are we embracing sin when we should be mourning sin? And it's fascinating that Paul uses this word mourning. And and honestly, it's like even in this moment in my life and in this moment in many of our lives, it's, it's interesting and in some ways really difficult to come across this passage and and process mourning. These past few weeks, for Anna and I, my wife, and many of you, have, have been weeks of mourning. I attended and was a part of a funeral of a dear friend just a few weeks ago. And since that, that funeral and the circumstances that have led to her passing away and going on to be with the Lord, every day has been marked by some kind of intense grief or mourning. There's been days that I've cried. There have been nights where I've lost sleep. There are days where I'm deeply sad and, and brokenhearted, all standing on the hope of the gospel. Who Jesus is is true. What he's done is true. That changes everything about, for the life of the believer, what death means. Yet it's sad that she He's not here with us, and I'm mourning and in grief because of the reality, first and foremost, of death. And mourning and grief are powerful and profound feelings to walk out. Nothing really stops you in your tracks like mourning. And this is what Paul is saying here, which is really convicting to me. Is when you you see sin... In your life, when you see sin in the life of somebody you love, the response shouldn't be an arrogant embrace like the Corinthians, but it should be grief. More often than it usually does, sin should lead us to shed some tears, to lose some sleep over it, to feel deeply sad or heartbroken, all standing on the hope of who Jesus is and what he's done. Not to despair, not not to mourn our sin as as driftwood where we're just being cast aside to and fro, but to mourn sin anchored in the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, knowing that he loves us and his mercies are new for us. See, everything that's wrong in the world, according to Scripture, traces back to sin. Sin breaks what is beautiful. It defiles what's pure. It brings death where there was life. And we see this no place more clearly than at the foot of the cross of Jesus. We see the consequences of sin, the cost of sin, the perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin. He became sin for us, our perfect Savior. He took the wages of sin upon himself, and that meant 
relational sacrifice and physical sacrifice and spiritual cost he paid, all in love for us. The heavenly father paid an indescribable price sending his only son to die on the cross for our sin. Sin is that serious. And so Paul is asking, hey, when you see sin in your own life or in the life of someone you love, ought you rather mourn? When you see it and the Holy Spirit convicts you of it, do you shrug it off? Or do you lean into the sadness of its reality and presence? And this sadness is an invitation, this mourning over sin is an invitation to not run from God, but run to him to receive his comfort and forgiveness and restoration as we repent. And I'm just thankful that we as a church seek out opportunities to do this intentionally together. When Ryan led us into confession and assurance, that was a sacred moment that we're invited to reflect and mourn on sin in our life. That's good. And, you know, we do that together to help build a culture where we can do that in our lives every day. The greatest revival in church history started, the Reformation started making the point that, hey, all of life is about repentance. All of life is about mourning sin, turning away from it, and running to Jesus. Why we have community groups in a real way, a big part of that is that we can have discipleship where we confess sin to one another and we mourn. Do we find ourselves mourning sin? This is the call we have from Paul. Paul then goes on to warn this church about the second thing, the importance of addressing sin. Paul again in verse 2 says, Let him... Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 3, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who has done such a thing. This is one of the stranger portions of this text to me. And I keep on thinking of my best friend in elementary school. We'll call him Rick Pellegrino. Um, it's not his real name, but it's probably close enough that if you know him, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I think he still lives in this city, lives in this city. But he, he was my best friend, a great friend, and a really bad kid. Just profoundly naughty. Um, and uh, and he's a, he's a, <laughs> he, he got in a lot of trouble. And, um, and his mom was, she just loved Jesus. She was a godly woman, um, and she was incredible. And I remember hanging out at his house one day, and he was dejected. And he was like, hey, you know what my mom does? My mom prays that when I do bad things, God will help her find out. And he was really upset that God was answering those prayers. Man, he was, he was super smart, and, and he, did, you know, he was sly and sneaky. And miraculously, no matter what he did, God led his mom to find out about it. And, and she would lovingly discipline him. And in some way, the way I received that, that third verse is that Paul, as a really profound and powerful spiritual father in this church, is saying, hey, when he's saying my spirit is among you, he, you know, that, that means probably many things. But maybe one of the things it means is that, hey, the Holy Spirit, is he loves you so much. He's answering my prayer to reveal the ways in which you are sinning so I can discipline you as a good spiritual father. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power 
of our Lord Jesus, Paul says. You are, deliver, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So that his spirit, listen, it doesn't stop there. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So Paul has already, through prayer, pronounced a judgment on this man who refuses repentance, who's openly and, and blatantly and pridefully embracing and standing in this sin, and so, call, so Paul, he calls the Corinthian church to respond to the judgment that he's already made and gives them instructions to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So what is Paul saying? What does this mean? It sounds maybe like the beginning of a plot to a freaky horror movie. Like what does it mean to deliver somebody over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh? That's not what Paul is saying at all, Paul is leading this church towards a, a healthy view and us towards a healthy view of who they are, who the church is, and the reality of what the world is like. Listen to what the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. And let this be the lens through which we view what Paul is saying. John writes this to the early church. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So when Paul directs this church to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that this, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, he's not telling them to interact with powers of darkness in any way. He's certainly not by any means telling them to make some transaction or interaction with Satan. What Paul is saying is that when they remove this unrepentant man from the church, they're removing him from the inclusion of a gospel community who is under the authority and influence of their King Jesus, and they are sending him back into the world that is under the authority and influence of Satan. Andrew Wilson who wrote the book, First Corinthians for You. It's one of the books that's featured on our resource wall out there. He gives a helpful explanation in his commentary on this passage. He says this, Like in the Old Testament, Paul is thinking in terms of sacred space in which sin is removed from the place in which God has chosen to live. Eden, the tabernacle, the temple, the church, and cast out into the place where Satan still holds sway. Exile, the wilderness, the land outside the camp, the world. So Paul is saying, hey, this man who is living in blatant, unrepentant sin, who is harming himself, yes, but also harming the, the community of God since he refuses to repent for his own good, we're going to come to see you need to put him out of the safety of gospel community under the authority of Jesus because he's not living under the authority of Jesus and place him back into the world, the realm that's under the authority of Satan. And, and we pray that he will come to his senses in that place, see his sin, and come back and receive restoration, grace, and repentance. But what should strike us is Paul's chief concern is the integrity of the whole church, not just this one man's unrepentant sin, which leads us to the third thing we need to see. Paul's warning this church in Corinth about the infectious spread of sin. Verse 6 says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are 
really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been crucified. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See, Paul does something really significant here. Instead of zooming out into the, into the, into, instead of zooming in, I should say, into the specific sins of this man. Like if I think I was writing this letter, I would be like, hey, Leviticus 18, 8. There's one verse that plainly says, hey, this ought not be done. This is outside of the, the laws of God. And yet Paul, being a wise pastor, what he does is he zooms out to show the big picture of the grace and the power of God. And instead of going to the specificity of what's written in one verse in in Leviticus, he goes back to look at the epic story of Exodus to talk about God's deliverance and salvation. See, after generations in slavery in Egypt, God rescues, delivers his chosen people. And the way in which he does that is by directing his people to take a perfect lamb, and they were to sacrifice that lamb and take the blood of that lamb and cover their doorway to say, hey, my sin, my life, my household is covered by sacrifice. And as God's just judgment is coming to pronounce judgment upon a people who have enslaved God's people, we're saying we're covered by the blood of the Lamb. Our life, our household, is covered by sacrifice. That we deserve judgment, and yet a price has been paid for that. So we are able to be set free. And so God came in judgment to Egypt, and he passes over those who were covered by the blood of the Lamb. He didn't judge them, but he delivers them from their slavery. And this whole epic, profound, foundational story to the Old Testament is, is merely a type and shadow and clue of what will be fully accomplished in Christ Jesus. So Paul here is saying, hey, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. My mind and my heart goes back to the moment where John the Baptist sees Jesus at the beginning of his ministry coming to be baptized. And what what does John cry out? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when Jesus Christ willingly took up his cross and died so that God's judgment would pass over us, so that we, as we sang today, could no longer be slaves to fear and sin, but we can be children of God through faith in Jesus. That is the most precious and costly sacrifice of all time. And Paul's saying, hey, church, don't, don't fail to take that sacrifice seriously. Don't fail to remember who you truly are. You are in Christ. You're already unleavened. You've already been made clean. You're already set free. Don't forget who your king is. Don't forget who you are. And ought you not mourn over what your king mourns over? Uh, Shouldn't you fight and wage war against what he has fought and waged war to free you from? Sin. So Paul uses leaven as an illustration for sin. And just as leaven mixes with dough and spreads, Paul's concern for this church is that this man's sin will we'll spread. What does this mean for us? It means that the church is called to fight sin and pursue holiness together. 
Recall, like, at the very beginning, the, the foundational issue, what's broken at the very heart, the soil of brokenness that, and the root of brokenness that all the, the sins of this church are growing out of in a real way is disunity. They're just like the city because they're always fighting against each other and, and just fractured and broken apart. And Paul's saying, hey, you're called to fight sin, and you're called to fight sin in unity together. What does it look like to be a people who pursue righteousness and fight sin together? It looks like what is being preached in this text here, and it looks like what has historically been made known as or described as church discipline. And when you hear that, it's, it's important to kind of define that there's two ways that a healthy church experiences church discipline. And the first is what we can call formative church discipline. Informative church discipline is at the heart of everything we do. It's, it's, you know, culture is just how things are, right? What is the waters we swim in? That's what culture is. And a healthy church needs to have a culture of formative church discipline, meaning that everything we do, its aim is to help us grow in maturity in Christ. And so together, as I'm preaching this sermon, I'm experiencing formative church discipline. As you're hearing this sermon, my prayer is that you're experiencing formative church discipline. That as we sang to morning, this morning, as we come to the Lord's table, as we gather in groups, as we study the Bible, as we pray for one another or serve each other, all of that is, is a part of walking the path of growing in maturity and being formed to look more like Jesus. And this comes first, and it must be in place for the second type of church discipline to happen, which is more rare, but it's still really important. And the second type of church discipline is restorative church discipline or corrective church discipline. And restorative church discipline seeks to call someone back to obedience in Jesus when they're living in unrepentant sin. And that's, what's Paul, that's what Paul's addressing in this chapter. And there are moments in the life of the church when the removal of someone from either the Lord's table, communion, or from even the life of the church itself is necessary as a part of restorative church discipline. And it's always done in love for the individual who is under that restorative or formal church discipline. Remember what Paul says, you were to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That doesn't mean physical harm. When Paul says flesh there, it's talking about his sinful base nature. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The end goal is that this young man runs back to Jesus. The heart isn't punishment or payback or revenge. The heart of corrective or restorative church discipline is love, just like any good parent disciplines a child, even when that gets tough. And so that might lead to the question, hey, when does this happen in the church? Well, let me just quickly give us three markers that are present in church discipline that leads to, or could lead to, ultimately, the removal of someone from the church, like here in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. And, and, and hear me out to the end, this is like, this requires a lot of nuance. But the first, I would say, is, is this, that what's a marker of a, a restorative church discipline plan? Well, the first, that this, the, the sin that's being addressed is consequential sin. 
The formal or a restorative church discipline is reserved for consequential sin. And hear me out. Like, all sin is serious. All sin is consequential. All sin is a crime against God. All sin hurts us and others. Yet, when we say, like, and when I say consequential sin, I'm talking about sin that is uniquely hurtful to ourselves and others. And let me just maybe explain this most uh, helpfully through example. Like, it is sinful for a husband to say on an occasion a harsher cutting word to his wife. That is sin. It's far more consequential regarding sin for that husband to be abusive to his wife. It's sin to be dishonest in your storytelling and exaggerate and boast all the time. To make yourself particularly look better. That's, that's sinful. But it's, it's a greater sin of consequence to be dishonest about your education or your work experience on your resume and actually take on a job and get hired under false pretenses, which are, are total lies. It's sin to have a lustful thought about someone at the gym. That sin has greater consequence when you have an ongoing affair with somebody you met at the gym and shatter your family through adultery. See, restorative church discipline isn't about trying to drive every sinner out of the church. There would be no church. I wouldn't be here next Sunday. Neither would you. It's not about expecting sinless perfection this side of eternity. That's not possible. But there are some sins that are especially damaging if they continue unhindered. And in love, a person must be removed from a church for their good and for the good of others when they're present. The second thing that marks restorative or, or corrective or formative church discipline is that the sin is confirmed by witnesses. See, a person isn't removed from the church by elders just because we have a sneaking suspicion that they're unrepentant sinners. <laughs> Restorative church discipline demands witnesses. This is why what Paul is calling this church to do and what he calls us to is built on the foundation of what Jesus calls us to do in Matthew 18. When someone has sinned, sinned against us, we're to go to them and call them to repentance. If they refuse, we bring some witnesses with us and, and call them as family together. And if even after they refuse that, we, we tell that sin to the church, which I think that best translates to like the leadership of the church is brought in to do the same. Call them to repentance. And we can have assurance that this has taken place with this man in 1 Corinthians 5. His sin is not based on rumor or hearsay it's, or suspicion. It's confirmed through witnesses. The whole church knew. Paul knew. The whole city of Corinth knew. It was confirmed and known and understood. And lastly, and really most importantly, the this, this sin that's addressed by this restorative church discipline, it's continually unrepentant. See, we're all sinful people. We all struggle with sin. We all fail but when we talk about restorative church discipline that leads to putting someone out of the church, we're not talking about struggling against sin. We're not talking about fighting against sin, but at times falling short. We're talking about a person who shows no fruit of repentance, that doesn't take their sin seriously at all, even after they've been called by friends and church leaders to turn from their sin and turn back to Jesus. And that's the scenario here in 1 Corinthians 5. And this is hard to do, but it's, 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 it's necessary to be a healthy church. So Paul lastly says in, in his fourth point, 
Hey, and this is an internal concern, sin. Sin is the internal concern of the church. What do we mean by that? Look at what Paul writes in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. When Paul says, hey, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, you might be thinking, hey, I don't remember that in the first four chapters. This is where it can get a bit confusing, but, but try to hang with me. 1 Corinthians is the first letter from Paul to the church in Corinth in the Bible. But Paul had written to this church before. So this is not Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Now, this church was inspired. This letter here, 1 Corinthians in Scripture, was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's an errant word of God. And so that's why it's in the canon of Scripture. And yet, lost to history, and we believe that's because sovereignly God did not want to include it in Scripture, or else he would have. (laughs) But Paul, at one point before this letter, wrote another letter, And one of the things that he wrote in that original letter to this church was not to associate with sexually immoral people. And this church misunderstood that, knowing this church maybe intentionally misunderstood that, and thought, oh, okay, that means that in our city in Corinth, we're not to associate with people who who are sexually immoral. But within the church, you know, we're under grace. We're free in Christ. And Paul is correcting them, and he's clarifying here. He's saying, hey, obviously, in a city like Corinth, it's literally impossible not to associate with people who are sexually immoral. You are called to befriend them and love them and share the love of Christ with non-Christians. Paul clarifies, verse 11, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler. It's not a word we use a lot. Someone who is harsh and violent with their words. A drunkard or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? For God judges those outside. And he quotes the Old Testament and says, purge the evil person from among you. So what is Paul saying here? God will make judgment calls out in the world. That people who are not Christians, that don't profess to follow Jesus, that that's God's concern. He's worried about their lives. We in the church ought not worry about whether they're doing right or wrong. Church, you make judgment calls about those who are part of the church. So let me put it this way. If, if we are asked, hey, what's the greatest threat to the church, and our answer has something to do with non-Christians or worldly culture, Paul's saying your focus is off. The biggest threat to the church is unrepentant sin, not out there, but in here. And I am not very good at this, and I suspect you're not very good at this. We tend to be experts at judging the world and novices at facing our own sin 
or lovingly addressing sin in people's life who we love. And Paul calls us to do the exact opposite. It's not our job to judge people who aren't Christians. God will judge them. People who claim to be Christians but are in an ongoing, in an unrepentant way, rebelling and rejecting the rule of God and the love of God and his commands. It's, it's our job as a church to judge them. And you might be thinking like, wait, 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 particularly in our church, in this local church. And you might be thinking like, hold on. I thought we were supposed to not be judgmental. Jesus himself said, judge not lest you be judged. What is going on here? And it's really important to understand there are differences between being judgmental and making a judgment. When Jesus said that, he's speaking to people who are judgmental, who are self-righteous in their pride, and they look down on others and think highly of themselves, and they're hypocritical in their standards. They make light of their own sin, and they, they really highlight and take joy in pointing out things in other people's lives. And Jesus had zero tolerance for people who were judgmental, self-righteous accusers. And so when Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, he's talking to religious elite, self-righteous snobs who are hypocritically criticizing everyone else. But Jesus said in that, that very same passage, and Paul is saying here, you're not to be judgmental, but you are to make judgments, meaning determining if something's right or wrong or good or bad. So if you work with somebody who is a brother or sister in Christ, and you see that they're defrauding or stealing from the company you work for, and you come to them and say, hey, this is wrong. What are you doing? And they say, hey, man, judge not, lest you be judged. Why are you so judgmental? be <laughs> like, what are you talking about? I love you, and so I'm just simply calling out what is right or wrong, and this is wrong, and I want to call you to, to run away from that sin and run to Jesus. You're being greedy. We need to do that for one another. We must do that for one another. Right? How do we do that for one another? This is the heart. I'll let Paul get the last word. This is Paul's charge to the church in Galatia. Galatians 6. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, it seems just really right and good going through a hard passage, but a really good passage for our hearts. To begin with thanksgiving for who you are. You're a gracious God, a merciful God. And in light of who you are, just freely confessing, saying, hey, we... We often, far too often, arrogantly embrace sin when we ought to mourn over it. 
we far too often don't take sin in our lives as, as seriously as we should. And we, and let's call it what it is, lack the love for those brothers and sisters in Christ and the family of God to lovingly seek to restore them in a spirit of gentleness when they're caught in a transgression like the Apostle Paul calls us to. So have mercy on us. Help us take sin seriously in our life, in the life of those that we love. Forgive us for being really judgmental towards the world and really unconcerned with our own righteousness, those who are in Christ Jesus who know better. Help us as a church walk out church discipline in a really godly way where we love each other enough to to shine the light of truth in our lives. And I pray even now that the weight that rests on us more than anything, even in the midst of good weight of conviction of sin, is the weight of the love of you, Heavenly Father, who's calling us to move towards you to experience love and grace and freedom and restoration forgiveness. And all that is fully ours, even as, as powerful as our sin may seem, up next to the cross of Christ, what chance can it stand? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus stand on this truth and we run to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. God's people said.